theyeshiva.net. know, friends, they tell the anecdote about these two boys in London who are driving on a bicycle and after a half an hour of driving their bike, a policeman stops them. And he tells them, he said, I'll tell you the truth. When I saw you driving, I decided I'm going to bust you. I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to catch you doing something illegal and I'm going to give you a summons. But for the last 30 minutes you have not violated the law even in a single instance. Tell me, how do you do this? And the boys turn to him and they say, because God is with us. He said, ah, it's against the law to have three on a bike. You get a ticket. Anecdote number two. There was once a very enlightened father who did not appreciate the fact that his child harbored and professed a simple faith in God's existence. But all of his arguments fell on deaf ears. So how do you dissuade your child from his faith? So the father decided to take a, piece of, uh, take a little piece of paper, scrap of paper, and he wrote on it a few words, God is no weir. And he placed it under the pillow of his child during his sleep, hoping when he wakes up in the morning and he gets this heavenly note that God is nowhere, finally he will sober up from his faith. In the morning, this little boy wakes up, discovers this note, comes running to his father and says, Daddy, you will not believe the message I received last night from heaven. Daddy says, what did it say? He said, it read, God is now here. I share with you these anecdotes because of what I believe is a burning issue facing our country, facing our communities, facing our children, facing human civilization. And very apropos to our gathering this evening. You know, on the 10th day of Shvat, Yud Shvat 1950, the 6th Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, known as the Rebbe Rayatz, passed away returning his soul to its maker. One day before his passing, he published what would be his last Hasidic discourse, his last Mimer, which was literally printed one day before he passed away, to be studied on that very Shabbos, the 10th of Shvat, 1950, when he passed on. And the reason he published a discourse for that day is because it is the yard site of his grandmother, Rebetzin Rivka. This Mimer, his last message, 
begins with a verse in Shir Hashirim, in the Song of Songs, the beginning of chapter 5, where King Solomon says, Basi legani kala. God says, I have returned to my garden, to my sister, to my bride. Referring metaphorically to the day that the tabernacle, the Mishkan, was constructed in the Midbar in the desert. And the Divine Presence comes back into the tabernacle. He says, I return to my garden, return to my world, to be together with my sister, to be together with my bride, with my people. That is the opening of the final discourse. And indeed, his successor, the Rebbe, every single year on the 10th day of Shvat, would review this discourse of his father-in-law, focusing on one chapter of it and delving deeper and deeper into it, but always beginning with these words, Basi Legani Achaisikala. And in one of his addresses on the 10th of Shvat, it was 1972, 40 years ago, 41 years ago, the Rebbe highlighted the significance of the fact that the final will and testament of his father-in-law, the Rebbe, was with the observation and the statement that God defines our world as my garden. And the following thoughts and reflections are based partially on that talk of the Rebbe in 72. Because this seems very strange. How can we call our world a garden, an orchard? You and I know that our world often reflects more a jungle than a garden. The world is filled with so much bloodshed and violence, with so much cruelty and absence of compassion, with so much bloodshed, abuse, pain, agony and suffering, wars, conflicts, disputes, internal turmoil, stress. Can you really call our, girl, our world a garden? When we open the newspaper, you read the news, you're struck by the amount of indecencies and acts of immorality or sheer evil that one human being per- perpetrates against another human being. And yet, he calls this world my garden. And what's fascinating is, the Rebbe pointed out that my father-in-law, the Rebbe, lived through the darkest period in Jewish and perhaps human history, when the black hole of civilization opened up. He endured the horrors of the two greatest arch enemies of the Jewish people, perhaps in history, Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler serving as the leader of Russian Jewry under Stalin. And then, present in Warsaw, during the outbreak of First World War in 1939, bombarded by the Germans, and the last moment fleeing Poland, escaping Poland, and arriving to the United States of America in March 1940. He is seeing the destruction of his people, 
And personally he suffered as well. And yet when he's about to leave this world, his final statement is, Basi Lagani Achaisi Kala, the world is a garden. And there's a profound message here. And the message is that from the Jewish perspective, we view life and we view our world in positive and optimistic terms. Is this sheer naivete? Is this immature innocence? No. But you have to put in one word before Ligani. The word is bossy. I have come to my garden. The reason it is called a garden is because I have come there. Only if we can encounter the presence of Hashem, the presence of the divine in the world, in our hearts, in our lives, knowing that God is present in every experience, in every journey, in every story, and in every life, can we then look deeper and appreciate the goodness inherent in our world. The condition then is, bossy, I have come here, I am here, and I am good. So this place is ultimately a garden. How do we transform it into a garden? How do we reveal that it's a garden? Also, through Bossi. Through introducing God into our world. And I want to focus on this for a few moments. In the last years, last few decades, and especially the last few years, we have all seen a tremendous outburst of violence in the United States of America. A free country, a lovely country, a prosperous country, a blessed and kind country. Especially among youth. Just now, December 14, 2012, we were shocked and overwhelmed by the horrific massacre in Newtown in Connecticut. Where a young man, a 20-year-old young man, Adam Lanza, Guns down. 26 people among them. 20 angelic, beautiful children. For no reason, for no purpose. One Friday morning, December 14th, 2012. Why? How? And what's the solution? So in the last weeks, we have been bombarded by numerous experts offering all types of solutions to the crisis. The primary ones, gun control, beef up security in the schools, armed school staff, more care and concern for the mentally challenged because apparently Adam Lanza suffered from Asperger's, a form of autism. It's on the spectrum of autism. Encouraging youngsters to share with adults threats and murderous plans they hear from their friends. Helping children who are isolated becoming more social. And so on and so forth. Now all of these ideas have merit and some of them are of vital and critical importance. What has not been sufficiently addressed 
and perhaps is the most important and vital message that the world and the nation must embrace at this moment is that we have to put in enormous resources and energy into focusing on character development of every child living in this country or any other countries. Of course, there are children who are mentally challenged. But you and I know many people who suffer from Asperger's, from autism, and they would never shoot anybody, they would never harm a person. Some of them would not harm a fly. There are many people who have very serious mental challenges, but it's not expressed in violence. Because in most cases, even people with psychological and mental challenges can learn about the difference between good and evil, between right and wrong, between light and darkness, between appropriate and inappropriate behavior, between productive and destructive behavior. And when right after every massacre and every murder of children in a school, we immediately begin discussing the fact that the killer was mentally ill. Or we begin focusing on the need for gun control. As important as these topics are, and they are very important, there is a major danger here. Number one, we are almost removing responsibility from the gunman by explaining that he had too easy access to guns and he had serious psychological and mental problems. What is more, for the future... We are not putting enough emphasis on the factor which might prevent a future horrific tragedy. Namely, revisiting are we and how are we developing the moral conscience and character of our children. Are we educating and molding a moral identity within each and every child? Teaching them right from wrong. Focusing time and energy and love on explaining to them values and morals and how do we develop a moral character in our child one thing we parents teachers educators can say it's a nice thing to do this it's not a nice thing to do this but that is very superficial can it really can it really challenge and battle instincts and habits and cravings and desires that sometimes run very deep and are very potent? We must give our children a profound message that will develop their moral character. What message is that? There's one message. And the message is... You have a creator. The creator created the world and leads the world. And he established certain behaviors as right, certain behaviors as wrong. He cares about you and about your behavior. And in life you are responsible to God who is the creator of the universe and the sovereign of the universe. Who expects of you, even in the privacy of your life certain behavior and who defined that this is positive and this is negative and holds you accountable and cares for you and loves you and wants the best for you and for every single human being living in this world and therefore gave you this manual and this blueprint of how to live. 
In other words, we have to teach our child that before he or she does something or abstains from an action, before he or she says something or abstains from speech, before he or she engages in a particular thought or abstains from it, besides asking all the other questions we ask before we do something or before we don't do something, to ask one more question. What is God's view on the matter? When I tell my child, behave in a particular way, I could say, think about the benefits of it. But what does that mean? What should he think about? Should he think about what I think about this act? I want to do it. What my father thinks about it, what my mother thinks about it. There are people like me. One day I'll be as big as them and maybe I'm already bigger and stronger than them. What the police think about it, what the country thinks about it, what the state or the law thinks about it, I can get around it, I can deceive them. But if I tell my child at every moment there is a God who is aware of what you're doing, an eye that sees and an ear that hears, there is a God who is in tune with every single moment of your life and you could not deceive Him. And before you do something, think, what does God say about what you're doing? Does He believe it's good or does He believe it's wrong and evil and negative? Every person, every child can get this and can live up to this. Now there are those who say, there's no need. Every child is good. Every person is good. If we would just eliminate poverty, if we would just make sure this child doesn't have any mental challenges, he's socially appropriate and socially integrated, he'll be good. The only reason people don't do good things is because there are external problems that interfere. Now, there is merit, of course, that different factors, external factors, contribute to one's behavior. But take a country like Germany. Germany was considered ethically and philosophically and artistically and scientifically one of the most advanced nations in the history. They prided, with themselves, they prided themselves with the poets, artists, philosophers, thinkers, scientists that they produced. And yet this very country debased itself and engaged in the most brutal, inhumane activities in the history of humanity, that one, one's imagination is, our minds staggering, to think that civilized, developed, cultured people, who can quote Goethe and Schiller, who can enjoy Beethoven, Mozart, and Wagner, can engage in such brutality and cruelty. What were they missing? They lacked one fundamental reality, one fundamental conviction. Namely, there was no simple conviction that they have a God. That God created the world, that God rules the world, that God is responsible for the world, and that God created certain laws and said, this is right and this is wrong, this is good and this is evil. Their ethics was completely based on their own mind, on their own sensibilities, on their own philosophy, and in the name of their philosophy, they created 
One of the most racist and evil theories in the history of civilization. One that ultimately caused the extermination of a third of our people. The verse says in Psalm, the genesis of all wisdom is the reverence and the awe of God. Now you might tell me, what about all the religious radicals? What about the Muslim fundamentalists? What about the generations of Christians who murder Jews? All in the name of God, all in the name of religion. Of course, God, religion, faith can be distorted and distorted terribly. Nobody knows that better than the Jewish people and how much we suffered from religion and from God. But nonetheless, the solution for Religion that turns monstrous and evil is not to eliminate the idea of God. Just like the solution for obesity or high cholesterol is not to destroy all food products and to stop eating. Because that will cause death. The solution is to eat the right foods. To stop eating bad foods. The solution to the challenges of humanity throughout history is not to eliminate God. Because when we eliminate God, we eliminate that powerful notion and conviction that can morally develop our children into mention, into good human beings. I ask you a question in reality, beyond debates. If there's two groups of children. One group is raised with the following notion. You are a mistake. We are all here randomly. We have evolved here without a purpose. There's nobody who created us with love, with purpose, with mission, with intention. There's no absolute right and wrong or moral law. Yes, you should be a nice person, you should follow the law of the state. But fundamentally, we are all just here, we live, we die, and when we die it's the end of us. We're not responsible to anybody higher, to anything absolute beyond us besides our own relative community, our own relative state. That's one group of children. And then there's another group of children. And this group of children is being raised with this notion. Somebody created you. Somebody conceived you and the whole universe with love. Somebody cares about everything you do, say and think. Somebody holds you accountable and responsible for your actions. And wants you to be good and to be kind and to be noble and to be moral and to live a certain way. And cares about the way you live and will hold you responsible. Where would you want your child to be? And I ask you, where is the more likelihood in these two groups? That one of these children is faced with a major craving or a major challenge or a great test or peer pressure or an inner voice. That's telling him to do something harmful and destructive. Where is the likelihood that the child will prevail over that test? More. The child of the group number one, the child of group number two. Answer that question honestly. The child that was raised with the notion that there is a God. Who created the world. Created the evil inclination within him. Created the possibility to have these negative habits. And has instructed this child... To withstand these negative habits. To fight his evil inclination. We educate the child that God created these negative inclinations within you. Empowering you and giving you the mission. To stand up to them. And fight them. And not allow them to hold you victim in their clutches. 
Or we tell a child, you are who you are. There's nothing before you, there's nothing after you. Of course, everyone has choice. And the child from the second group may turn out to be a monster. And the first group, the child may be an angel, may be a kind kid. But I ask you a real question. Where is the more likelihood of they're both challenged? Mentally, psychologically, socially, or many other ways. And they're tempted to do things that are harmful. Where are you giving them greater tools and resources to be able to overcome? You are not afraid to be murdered by a decent human being because decent human beings don't kill and don't harm. We have to turn our children into decent human beings, good people. How do we do that? We have to focus on goodness. How do we focus on goodness? We have to tell them what it means to be good. But what's the basis of being good? Why should they be good? What does it mean to be good? How important is it to be good? Here we have to introduce the presence of a divine being for moral development. You want your world to be a garden? Bussy. Bring me into the world. Bussy Lagani. I have come into my garden. Bring him in. And then we will create gardens. We will create children which are orchards. Which generate the most pleasant aromas. And the most beautiful smells. This idea has always been the foundation of the United States of America. And it's the reason why in 1981, the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, began dedicating scores of hours to plead for a moment of silence in all public schools. A moment of silence in the beginning of the day, where the teacher does not tell the child what to think, what to pray about, what to reflect on, not to mix church and state, but rather, where every parent tells their child what to do during that moment of silence. But they start the day reflecting on what is the most important thing in life. Because he felt that every public school desperately needs that foundation for the children. We cannot deprive our children of that which will help them most in life. And that which they need most in life. What do they need? Above the education, the knowledge, the information, the ability to make a good living. The ability to master the sciences and various branches of wisdom. What they need most is the knowledge that they matter. That their life is significant. That they have a power to overcome the darkness and the skeletons and the demons. We have to give our children the resources and the abilities to know how much is at stake in their existence. And can we do that if we delete God? Creator from their psyches.
Fascinating debate in Medrash. But let me introduce it first with another anecdote. There is this Jew who meets a psychoanalyst in the street and he says, I need your help. He says, what do you need my help for? He says, I can't sleep at night. All night I'm lying in bed and I imagine that there are ghosts under my bed and I can't sleep psychoanalyst tells him it's a serious problem you need intensive psychoanalysis it's going to last for three years you have to come twice a week each session will last 45 minutes each session will cost you $420 but after three years you will be cured you'll be a new man you'll finally be able to sleep serenely the Jew says, I can't afford that, there's no way. He says, then I'm sorry, I can't help you. Okay. Meets him again the next week. Doctor, desperate, it's impossible, I can't live this way. He repeats his proposal again, he says, I have no money. Okay, then I can't cure you. A few months later, the same Jew is walking down the street, meets the same psychoanalyst. Hey, how you doing? Oh, how you doing? He says, tell me, how is your sleeping? He says, ah. Unbelievable. All the problems went away. He says, really? How do you do it? He says, I went to the rabbi. I told him the problem. And what did the rabbi say? The rabbi told me, he said, just cut off the legs of the bed. 
so that the monsters and the ghosts won't be able to climb in. And since then, the bed went down to the ground. Amachaya, it's a pleasure. I sleep like a baby with so much tranquility. There's a fascinating and very intriguing debate in the Medrash. The debate is between Rav and Rabban Shimon Bar Yochai. In Medrash Rabbah, Parshas Nosoi. On the words, The day that Moses completed putting up the tabernacle. The great Talmudic sage Rav says, Vayihi is Loshen Chidush Dover. When it says Vayihi in the Torah, it means and it came to be intimating that it is something novel. A new experience, unprecedented. Vayihi. It came to be something that never was before. So Rav says, what the Torah means to say here is, that this reality, that God should dwell in the world, was unprecedented. Vayihi. It's something new that occurred. Reb Shimon Bar Yechai argues. He says, that's not the case. The divine presence was in the world in the beginning of creation. Now, when the tabernacle was erected, it merely returned. In his words, Chazar shahaya. In the beginning of creation, the divine presence was there, but then Adam and Eve sinned, and they expelled God. And when the tabernacle was created, he resumed his position on earth, and he came back. Posak Yomim Harbi was interrupted for many years, and it was restored to the way it was. According to Rav, it was a novel new experience. According to Rav Shemim Bayechai, no. It was resuming that which once was. What's the nature of the argument? If the divine presence was here in the beginning of creation or not? Rav said the beginning of the Bible is in the beginning God created heaven and earth. But Rav says the divine presence was not here. When the tabernacle was created, something new, unprecedented occurred. Rav Shemayachai argues it was always here. What's the nature of this argument? What's the reasoning behind this argument? There are two ways, my dear friends. You can look at the world. There are two ways you could look at yourself. There are two ways you could look at the society around you. One way you could look at yourself is you're essentially bad, flawed, undeserving. You are a problem. Perhaps through great effort, through much toil, sweat, blood and tears, you can transform your condition into something else. You can look at the world and say the world is inherently evil. The world is a bad place. People are bad, people are undeserving. Maybe I can make a revolution. Maybe we can create a transformation. But it would be novel, it would be unprecedented. Or you could look at it in different ways. And this may be the argument between Rav and Rav by Yechai. Rav says, the tabernacle brought the divine presence into the world, but you have to appreciate that it's a chiddish, it's something new. It was not innate, it was not natural, it was not organic. 
This world is a place of darkness, of negativity. The construction of the tabernacle was a great miracle. It was a change of nature. Reb Shimon Bayechai has a different approach. Reb Shimon Bayechai says the divine presence was here in the beginning of creation. In other words, the world, by its very nature, by its very definition, is divine. It's a reflection of the harmony, of the perfection, of the goodness and the holiness of the divine. A human being in his or her very core is good, is sacred, is pure, is beautiful, is harmonious. However, various superficial forces, temptations, addictions, bad habits, impose themselves and distorted and manipulated and convoluted the natural nature of man and of the world. And what you have to do is remove the shells, remove the husks, remove the layers that have amassed to eclipse the essential nature of the universe and of the human being. And then the divine presence will be restored to its rightful place. Reb Shemem says, you can change the world because you're not really changing it. You're just chipping away. You're just chipping away on the marble. And you're setting the inner angel free. You're just removing the obstructions. And you're allowing the natural, organic, healthy flow to emerge. There's a major difference between the Jewish religion and other religions and other philosophies where in other religions, often, the universe is seen in very bleak terms and man is seen as inherently evil. Judaism never believed in escapism of the world, in running away from it, in believing that it was doomed and we were doomed. Yet, there is still an argument because Rav says, we can build a Mishkan, but it's something new. Reb Shimon Bayechai argues, and he says, it's not even new. It's getting back to the core, it's getting back to the basics. When you're treating yourself, you're treating another person. The narrative that Reb Shimon Bayechai suggests is, there is inherent goodness, there is so much that is beautiful and perfect. And everything else is superimposed. This is a very profound argument, philosophically, psychologically, emotionally, and of course spiritually. Now, this is in Medrash Rabbah, Parshas Nasai. If you study the discourse of Basi Lagani Achaisi Kala, of the Rebbe, 1950, Basi Lagani, he right away quotes the Medrash on Shir Hashirim, on the Song of Songs, on the words, I have returned to my garden. What does the Medrash say? It doesn't say I've come to the garden. It says I've come to my garden. I'm returning to my primary residence because the divine presence was here in the beginning of creation of the world. It's just that there were seven successive major sins that expelled the divine presence. The sin of Adam and Eve. The sin of Cain murdering Hevel, Abel. The sin of the generation of Enosh, idolatry. The sin of the generation of the flood. The tower of Babel. Number six, Zdaim. And number seven, what the Egyptians did during the era of Abraham. Very depraved. 
And then there were seven tzaddikim who began bringing the Divine Presence back. Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Levi, Kahas, Amram, and the seventh was Moses, Moshe, who built the tabernacle. This is the medrash that is quoted in the opening of the Maimer, the discourse Basilagani. Which opinion does Basilagani follow? Rav or Rav Shimon Bayechai? Obviously, the medrash in Shir Hashirim quoted in Basilagani is following the method, articula- the approach articulated by Rav Shimon Bayechai. Now, Rav Shimon Bayechai is the one, of course, who gave the world the gift of Kabbalah. The gift of Zohar, known as Pnimiyas HaTayr. The internal secrets of the Torah, which came to reveal the internal characteristics of man and of the world and of the Torah. To expose not only the body, but also the soul. So Reb Shimon, Reb Shimon teaches that the Shekhinah was always here. This, this is a place of divinity. It's a place of godliness. The argument between the two has many ramifications and various components of Jewish philosophy, Jewish law, especially Jewish mysticism. But the path embraced in the opening words of Basilagani, lived by the Rebbe whose yard site is on Yutshvata by his son-in-law, the Rebbe, who carried this message over the following decades was look in the mirror deeply and you will see incredible beauty, potential and power. Look deeply into the world and you will find God. Look deeply into another person and you will discover soulfulness. You can change. You can have an impact. You can transform the world. You know why? Because you're not transforming it from without. You're not superimposing your dominion on a reality that is alien to your message. The world itself, creation itself, existence itself, yearns to put its mouth on the mouth of man. And the clear Yizgadal, the Yizgadash, Shmei Rabba. But, we have to remember what the Medrash says, how that process takes place. There were seven Sadikim in history who began bringing down the Divine Presence. Because we know that there are seven heavens. And during the seven above mentioned sins, the Divine Presence went up. From earth to level 1 of heaven, and then level 2, and level 3, and level 4, till level 7, godliness becoming more and more aloof, abstract, segregated. And then the seven Sadikim Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Levi, Kahas, Amram, Moshe, brought it down, level by level, until Moshe brings the Shekhinah down to earth. The first Sadik who begins the process is Abraham, Avram, Avinu, and the final one, the seventh one, is Moshe. What does Avram represent? Abraham wakes up in the morning, so the Talmud says, the Gemara says, in tracted brachas, in the fourth chapter, Avraham tikkein tefillah shachras. Avraham Avinu is the one who gave us the gift of the morning prayers. What was Moshe Rabbeinu's gift? Zichru Torah, Moshe Avdi, remember the Torah of Moshe? Moshe gave us Torah. 
The first tzaddik to bring the divine presence back into the world where it always was. And the last tzaddik represent the two pillars necessary in order to be able to appreciate how the world is truly God's garden because his shechina was here right in the beginning of creation. It was just expelled but only to come back afterwards through healing. But this is naturally the place of God. We are naturally and deeply good and holy. And the two methods is when you wake up in the morning, you need Avraham Avinu. When I wake up in the morning, I have to pray sincerely. Because when you daven in the morning with sincerity, you realign yourself with your true self, and you put on those glasses that allow you to go out to the world and look at the world from a deeper, truer, more authentic perspective, seeing the world not from a superficial vantage point, but from a deeper point of view. And when you meet people, to have the same experience. So the first thing you need is Avraham, Avinu, you need prayer, and then you finally need Moshe, which represents Torah. A Jew must pray in the morning, and then learn every morning. Because those are the two pillars that allow us to realign ourselves and our world with our true selves. The way we treat our people in business, the way we treat our spouses in a marriage, the way we deal with our children, the way we deal with every person we come in contact with. If we have in the morning the pillar represented by Avraham, davening, and the pillar represented by Moshe, learning, both of them done with devotion and commitment, both of these tools... Prayer and study. One reaching into the heart, one reaching into the mind. One transforming our paradigms and perspectives. And the other one allowing us to experience with these two qualities. We can go out and not be demoralized and not be drained and not get exhausted. But rather have a healthy optimistic attitude knowing that despite all the weeds and thorns that may exist in this garden, essentially, the world lends itself to transformation. And people lend themselves to enhancement and transformation. Why? Because we're not introducing something alien, something different, something repressive. We are rather going back to the most basic core. We're chipping away on the externals. And exploring the essence. L'chaim, l'chaim v'levracha. Ya la 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 la
The Gemara, the Talmud, tells us a story. This is in Tractate Baba Basra, Tafches Ahmed Beis, Baba Basra, page 8b. The Talmud says there was a man, his name was Rab Shmuel Bar Shilas, Shmuel the son of Shilas. And one day Rav finds him tending to his garden, and Rav tells him two words. You have abandoned your trustworthiness, your faithfulness. You see, this man of Shmuel, Barshelas, was a teacher. He was a teacher of children. And in the middle of the day, he's in his garden, you know, he's mowing the lawn, or he's tending to his plants, to his fruits, to his vegetables. Raf says, you have abandoned your trustfulness, your your dedication to the kids. And Reb Shmuel Bar Shelas tells Rav, he says, 18, 30, he tells Rav, 13 years, I have not been to this garden. I have been with the children always. And even now, when I finally decided I have to do some work with the garden, I guess after 13 years the neighbors were upset. He wasn't taking care of the garden. It was growing wild. My mind is still on them. I am still thinking about them. And the Talmud continues and says that the Pasuk says in Daniel, the verse says in Daniel, the wise ones will shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who do righteousness with the public will be like eternal stars so the Talmud says the wise ones are referring to honest judges and the ones who do righteousness with the public is referring to Malam Deitinoikus, teachers of children. They shine like stars, and the Gemara says, Rab Shmuel Barshelas was such a teacher. He was a star. What's the connection? So the Maharsha, the great commentator on the Gemara, explains the connection, and he says, The star you can see at night, but even during the day, you may not be able to see the star. You may not be able to observe with your star the stars, but the stars are present. They're present in the sky, and they have an impact, and they yield an influence, even though you can't see them. Zagdemar Shah, that's a teacher. There are times in your life you can see your teacher, 
like nighttime when you see your stars. But the teacher has an eternal impact on influence on the child, just like the star. Even when you don't see the star, it's still present and it impacts the earth. Because the teacher molds the student. So years later, the teacher may not see his, the student may not see his teacher. The young man or woman may not remember their teacher. They may not have contact with their teacher. But it's because what you put into that child, the messages you inculcated into that child, determine and define his or her course for many years, sometimes for the remainder of their life, positively or God forbid negatively. And that's why the Gemara brings this verse on who? Rav Shmuel Bar Because when he's in the garden, he's still thinking about these students. In other words, he's like the star. Even when he's not shining, when he's not visible to them, he's still connected to them in his mind. But one question. Why are judges, honest judges, compared to the firmament of heaven? To the light, to Zoyer Harakia, versus teachers who are compared to stars. So there's a beautiful insight in the Nesivis HaMishpat. He says, the difference between the firmament, the light penetrating the heaven, Zoyer Harakia, like the light of the sun, and the stars is as follows. The light that is reflected through the heavenly firmament is uniform. It's one light. The term of the Talmud, Shimsha Kula Almanaycha. The whole world benefits from the sun. The stars, every star is different. The light of the sun is a uniform light. It comes from one reality, the sun. The stars, every star is different. Every star has its own color, its own shape, its own size. And that's the difference between a judge and a teacher. The judge, the judge justice by definition, can't differentiate between people. If I'm an honest judge, I can't say, justice for you is one thing, and for you it's something else. I can't say, because you're wealthy, therefore the law changes, or because you're poor, the law changes. That's not justice. That may be compassion or sensitivity, but not justice. Justice, by definition, is uniform. It's all-inclusive. One and all. Because if not, you can't have law. You can't have order. If you're always going to manipulate the law relative to the individual needs and circumstances of every individual, might as abolish any system of justice. There'll be chaos. There'll be anarchy. The idea of the judge is, as the Gemara says, din pruta din meya. You treat the largest amount of money, the smallest amount of money identically. You treat the smallest person and the greatest person identically. There's one law for all. By definition, it's like the light of the sun. It's one light that reaches all in the same fashion. The teacher is... Judges are like stars. The definition of an educator is... There are so many different types of stars. 
because there are so many different types of children. So there are blue stars, there are yellow stars, there are orange stars, because different lights have to be communicated to different children. One cannot say that the same method of illumination comes to every child. Unlike the judges who are administrating justice, a teacher can be uniform to all the students. Chinuch has to be tailor-made. And this is a fundamental idea about education. You have to be like the stars, not like the sun. Because the needs of this child are not the needs of this child. The challenges of this child are not the challenges of this child. Every child has their unique mind, their unique soul, their unique heart, their unique sensitivities, their unique strengths, gifts, virtues, weaknesses, challenges and flaws. And the parent, the educator, the pedagogue, the mentor has to look deeply into the heart of the child, understand the child, appreciate the child, be sensitive to the child, and communicate the appropriate light from this star, desperately needed for this child. In the terms of Shloim, the words of Shloim HaMelech, Hanoich Lenar, Al Pidar Koi, educate the child according to his way. In the Haggadah we have four children, four sons. Why four? Why does the Torah connect our Bob Bonim Dibra Torah? The Torah speaks about four sons. Why four? There's one message. If it's true, if it's God's word, it's one message for all the sons. You don't like it? Jump into the lake. No. Connect our Bob Bonim Dibra Torah. The Torah speaks initially about four children, addressing four different children who ask different questions and need to hear different answers. Echad Chachem, Echad Rosh, Echad Tam, Echad Cheney, Yedei Elishel. And the Baal HaYelula, the Rebbe Rayatz once said, Echad Chachem, the next word should be, Hasheni, Rosh, Hashlishi, Tam, Harivi. Number one is the Chachem, number two is the, the Rosh, number three is the Tam. The wise one, the wicked one, the simpleton, the one who doesn't know what to ask. And he answered, in each one there is an Echad. There's an Echad in Chacham. There's the Oneness in the Chacham. There's the Echad in the Rasha. There's the Echad in the Tam. There's the Echad in the Shadei Elishal. In each one there's an Echad. And your job as a pedagogue is to reveal the Echad. To reveal the Hashem Echad, the Oneness in that child. And the way you reveal the Echad in one is not the way you reveal the Echad in the other. Although it's all Echad, it's all one. Because the, cha- the teacher is the star. Kechavim Lailam Vat. And all of you know that there are things you heard from a teacher, positive or negative, that you still carry with you. And you still remember with, you remember. And we have to remember that every word and every gesture we make to our child, and we give our child as parents or teachers, or even just randomly, can have an eternal impact. As the Marsha says, and this is, this is what the Zohar says. The Zohar says, on the Pasuk, it says that uh, when you'll find a nest of birds, and the mother bird is crouching on her offspring, on her children. So the Zohar says, the aim, the mother, is the Shechina, the feminine divine energy, the mother of the universe. She always crouches on the children. Wherever you meet children, that's where God is. The aim is always with the children. God is with children. 
And this is the moment to pay tribute to our teachers. You know that the Balhai, the, the, the Rebbe Rayats and the Rebbe, their entire life was dedicated to their people. To uplift, to inspire, to help, to rescue materially and spiritually. But above all, their greatest passion and dedication was to education. Chinuch. In the 1920s, in the communist paradise which became a living hell, when Stalin and the KGB and the Communist Party and the Efsexia, which was the Jewish department of the Communist Party, was determined to uproot every last vestige of Judaism in the Soviet Union, and the Rebbe Rayats built underground schools, school after school to maintain Jewish education. An extraordinary network of Jewish chadorim, yeshiva schools. And once at a Fabrengen, he turned to one of the greatest Hasidim, whose name was Reb Itchem Asmet, Reb Yitzchak Masmet. He was later killed in the Holocaust. He was burned in Riga in Latvia in 1942. He was an extraordinary man. He was a holy person. And he was completely dedicated to God's service. He prayed all day and he learned to old night. He was really a great man. Reb Yitzchak Horowitz was his name. They called him Reb Itchem Asmet. And the Rebbe turned, the Rebbe Rayat, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, turned to him in the middle of a Fabrengen. This was in Leningrad, Petersburg. And he says, Herst Itcha, you hear what I'm saying, Itcha? Tustu in Tinoikus shall be Srabon, Bistaminer. If you're committed and involved with children, with educating children, with opening schools, with maintaining schools, with helping teachers, then. You're mine. You're in my army. You belong to me. You're my chassid. And if not, he didn't finish. You may be a great man. You may be a saintly man. But you're not mine. Because his passion, like the Rebbe's passion, was chinuch, was education. When he came to the United States, he established in 1941 a few organizations, and one of them the central educational arm of Lubavitch, he called Merkez L'Inyone Chinuch, the center for all things connected with education. Chinuch. And we often don't appreciate the teachers enough. The teachers who spend all day with the children, where the mother is, where the Shechina is. And the words that you, that the teachers tell the students like stars, Remain with them forever, even when night passes and the stars are not visible, but they remember it forever. And a student sees and observes the teacher as he does the parent. And when they see their teachers and parents burning with a love for Torah, and a love for Israel, and a love for God, that love automatically is implanted in the very psyche of the child. But like a star, every star is different. You have to be attuned to the needs of your child and it's not always simple. So the other day I was in shul and somebody met, meets me and he said, I want to tell you a story that occurred to me when I was a child. I went on a yechidus. I went on a private audience to the Rebbe, to the Lubavitcher Rebbe with my parents. 
and on other, my, uh, and siblings. And he was there together with his brother. And the Rebbe turned to both of us and asked us to say the Shema by heart. So he says, my brother said the Shema by heart. He said the whole Shema. And the Rebbe appreciated it and took out a silver dollar and he gave it to my brother as a token of appreciation and reward for saying the Shema. And then he turns to me, the Shema, I didn't want to, I refused. I was shy or I was embarrassed or I didn't want to, I wasn't in the mood. Whatever it is, go ask questions on a child or on anybody. So the Rebbe had that coin and I, did, I wasn't saying the Shema. So he waited a few moments. He asked me a few times. I kept on refusing and declining. So what did the Rebbe do? He took the coin. The same coin that he gave my brother. And he gave it to my mother. And he said, At night, before he goes to bed, he will certainly say the Shema. So after he says the Shema, you'll give him this silver dollar from me. And this boy who's today an adult, not a young man anymore, tells me that he remembered this message forever. You see, the Rebbe could have done one of two things. The Rebbe could have felt bad for this boy, and not wanting to make one child feel inferior to another child, especially a brother, give him the coin anyway. But that, of course, would be communicating a wrong message. It's not fair. One of them said the Shema, one of them did not say the Shema. Why are they both getting the same reward? It's unjust. The message would be, what you do doesn't really matter. The Rebbe could have been very just and straight. You said the Shema, you get the coin. You don't say, you don't get the coin. That would be just. You had a choice. I'm nice. You're not saying the Shema. But what would happen? The boy ultimately would go home feeling bad, feeling lowly about himself. Sure, he could blame himself. But the bottom line is, I failed myself. I failed the Rebbe. What did the Rebbe do? He gave the boy the coin, but he gave it to his mother and he said, I'm sure he's going to say the Shema. And right when he says the Shema, he gets the same coin. This is called an education, not like a judge, but like a star. Don't be a sun. Sun as the sun of the light, the light of the sun, but as a star. There's a story that stuck with me. It's very, it was very fascinating to me when I read it. About the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak It's a very uncharacteristic and interesting story. You don't read these stories every day. It was published in 1980 in the Jewish press, the weekly news, English newspaper, the Jewish press. There was an article about the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rayatz. And in the letters to the editor, they printed in 1980 a letter that a man wrote to the editor of the Jewish press. And he says, I'm not a chassid. He's a Jew from Philadelphia. But I had the privilege of experiencing the remarkable dedication of the rabbi to help Jews return to the observance of mitzvahs. He says, decades after my experience, I still blush when I recall the chutzpah displayed by six of my friends towards Rabbi Schneerson and how he gently turned us around. And he describes the story. Now I should say, this was written in 1980. The story happens in 1929. It's a good couple of years. He says he's old already. 
So I'm sure that many or some errors creeped into the story. It's not completely meticulous and accurate. But I would assume that at least the thrust and the spirit of the story is accurate and correct. So this takes us back to 1929. The Lubavitcher Rebbe made a historic trip the first time, for the first time to the United States of America. Just a little while earlier, in 1927, he was arrested by the communists. He was first sentenced to death for being a counter-revolutionary and then substituted with exile. Ultimately, he's freed in 1927. He leaves Russia at the end of 20, close to the end of 27. He moves to Latvia and then he moves to Poland where he is till the war. But in 1929, he makes a visit. He visits the Holy Land, Eretz Yisrael. He also visits the United States of America for close to a year. And his visit is reported in the Anglo-Jewish press, in the Jewish media in the United States of America, in quite an impressive fashion. Uh, he, was, uh, he was, to a certain extent, a legend. People have heard about his courageousness, and his ferocious battle in the Soviet Union, and the fact that he literally stood up to a vicious empire almost single-handedly, refusing to surrender and capitulate, and he triumphed. (laughs) He triumphed. They tried to kill him. They did not. And he's now in America. So the report of his visit was widely, uh, widely publicized. And this man, writing to the Jewish press, says, we lived in Philadelphia. My friends and I read these articles, and I quote, we wondered amongst ourselves whether the rabbi, the rebbe, was actually planning to replace the Almighty. We discussed this with an official of our synagogue, and he said, why don't you go visit the rebbe and ask him your question? One of the articles mentioned that he's been given use of a house, I believe in Philadelphia, on 33rd Street, by a woman named Mrs. Fagan Miller, who was well known with her charitable nature and, and, and deeds. So one Saturday evening, Matsoi Shabbos, Saturday evening, my friends and I, we went, we made our way to that house. We wanted to confront the Rebbe and tell him, what we thought about him, <laughs> that it seemed like he was trying to displace God. We climb up the steps to the front porch, we look through the window, and we see the living room is crowded with people. We knock on the door or ring the doorbell, a dignified person comes to the door, a bearded man, he asks us what we would like, we tell him we would like to speak to the Lubavitcher we have an important question to ask. He's taking notes as we are talking to him. Later we find out that his name is Yecheskel Fagan. Chacha Fagan. He was the personal secretary of the Rebbe. Unfortunately he and his family were also exterminated in the Holocaust. He was a special man. He was a giant. His name was Yecheskel Fagan. So he asks the boys, what do you want to talk to the Rebbe about? They respond, we would like to know how he expects to keep an old-fashioned religion in a modern country. The man writes, of course, we didn't tell his secretary what we really wanted to ask him. 
because we knew he would not let us in. So we made up our own story and we said we want to ask him about this question, you know. How can you... Remember, 1929 America is not America of, of the 21st century. This man says you'll have to wait. You see there's a large crowd here. Come in and wait. We told them we'll wait on the porch because there was no room in the living room for everybody. It was packed. And we sat on the porch waiting. A few minutes later he comes out and he tells us that the Rebbe would see us right now. He took us into the house. We went through the living room, up the stairs. We wondered why we had been admitted before all the people downstairs who were waiting. But we were admitted. He says the Rebbe was handsome and saintly looking with gleaming bright eyes, bright eyes, wearing a large fur hat, I guess it was a spodic. His hand was outstretched in greeting. And he tells us, this is the happiest moment I have had in Philadelphia. As he invites us all to sit down around the desk, and he's sitting, and all these youngsters, these chutzpinyaks, are sitting around his desk. We are wondering, why is this his happiest moment in Philadelphia? He says, you look like intelligent young men. I'll speak to you on your level. You're wondering, why are all these people downstairs waiting to talk for me, with me? I'll tell you. One man's daughter is seriously ill. How can I really help that person? I can pray to Hashem, to God, like he could pray to bring healing to his daughter. Another guy has a lawsuit and he wants me to pray that he's going to win. I don't know who's right, but I'm going to pray that God brings justice to the world. Another person wants to buy a business and he wants me to intercede to make sure that his business is a success. He says, if I could do that, I would be a rich businessman. But if I could not answer your question, young men, then I have no right to be a rabbi. You're finally asking a question that belongs to me. How do you expect to hold on to religion, an ancient religion in a modern country. The other questions I have to find a way to deal with. But if I can't answer your question, then what am I doing? This is my, this is my mission statement. This is my function. And this is why finally I'm having a very happy moment in Philadelphia. And this man writes, he says, the Rebbe smiled and he said, I quote him now. I'm quoting what he writes. I must admit a great secret which I trust you will most likely keep. There are 613 mitzvahs. And while the Lubavitcher Rebbe tries to keep them all, he quotes, he finds it impossible to keep them all. So what does he do? Discard 613 mitzvahs? No. He keeps as many of them as humanly possible. If I may interfere in the story... I would suggest that perhaps, based on my uh, knowledge, at least somewhat, of the Rebbe's writings and talks, that he may have said, 
Is it possible for me to keep them all in the utmost perfection? Of course not. But as much as I can, I keep to the highest degree possible. And the man writes, with these few words, he removed the venom we had brought with us. And then he said, I ask you to try and keep as many mitzvahs as you can. The point, of course, being, it may be an old religion, this may be a modern country, but it's still relevant, and do whatever you can. If we kept, he said, as many as we could, then we'd be doing the same thing as the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He asked us for our names, our mother's names. We offered our legal names and our addresses, but he said he had no use for them. Several of the boys put their hands in their pockets, but he stopped them with a gesture. He thanked them, and he said, I need not your money. What I'm interested in is your mitzvahs. The Rebbe then turned to these six boys and said, Do you put on tefillin every day? Several admitted that they have given up on tefillin. He offered them tefillin so they could fulfill the mitzvah. All of the boys promised the Rebbe that they would try to live up to his suggestions, to grow in their Judaism and do as much as they can. He then blessed us individually, he shook hands with us again, and we left. It was a ten-minute visit. We all stood on the porch for nearly two hours, digesting the visit. Every one of those boys, he says, agreed to daven, to pray, to put on tefillin, and to pray at least once a day. One decided right then to give up his work on Shabbos as a dental technician, and some months later he prevailed upon his employer to do the same. One of us, Gabriel Lowenthal, of blessed memory, attached himself to a synagogue, and became a teacher teaching what the Rebbe taught him to many others. I have lost track of some of the boys, the man says, but I'm sure that the ten minutes we spent with the Rebbe strengthened the spirit of Judaism for all of us. The depression, it's 1929, 1930, 1931, there's a major depression. The depression and later World War II gave me little hope of ever gaining more light from Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak. However, I found continued inspiration from his son-in-law, the present Rebbe, to keep as many of the 613 mitzvahs as I can. And when I read this story the first time, I understood the meaning of communication, education, like a star. They came with anger, they came with venom. But when the Rebbe met them, it was not about himself, it was not about his prominence, his dignity, his honor as a Rebbe. He tuned in to these youngsters. He knew that deep down they were innocent, they were just naturally cynical. He displayed his sensitive, compassionate, human side. And immediately their anger just melted away. And he took six youngsters and strengthened the spirit of Yiddishkeit within each of them. Any child you meet, any teenager you meet, with the proper words, with the proper approach, with the proper attentiveness, you could become that star. A star that will influence and bring light into that young person's life for eternity. L'chaim, l'chaim, l'chaim.
There are some very powerful, acute, penetrating, deeply spiritual statements, one-liners, sayings by the Rebbe Rayats, by the Baal Hayilula, by the person whose yard site we commemorate today, Yud Shvat, the 10th of Shvat. I chose randomly some of those one-liners. And I'm going to share them with you in Yiddish, and then I'm going to translate it. I do have to say that in some of the cases, the translation is poor. And maybe inaccurate even. 
But nonetheless, I will do it. I will try to do them justice. Each line is a Torah. Each line contains incredible depth and guidance in life. The first, the Rebbe quoted this in the name of the great Kabbalist, the great sage who was killed in 1648 in Polnoya, in Poland. The Nostra Polar. Toiva ha im habriyos it is good to be lonely, but among people. It is good to be aloof, but together with other human beings. In Yederzach is Faran der Vos, der Farvos, und der Zulibvos. In everything in life, there must be three components the what, the why, and for what purpose? You have to be able to answer these three questions. What? Why? And for what purpose? There was is nidirikun grab hetnit on the egen to nidirikait. Somebody who's lowly, coarse and brute is completely unaware of their own coarseness and bruteness and lowliness. In the Madrege von MS is nit faran kein MS demioini. MS is azoi unit andersh. In truth, there is no delusional truth. MS is this and not any different. Agevorener nar is erger via geborener nar. Oh, how do I translate this? Somebody who becomes a fool later on in life is much worse than a born fool. A self-made fool or a created fool later on is worse than a born fool. It's difficult to talk, but it's even more difficult, more painful to remain silent. To reach the most eternal truth of something. To reach something in a very genuine and deep way that it should become internalized within you. It's only through serious sacrifice and dedication. It's time, the Rebbe says, to stop lying. There was a Jew, a Chassid, 90 years old. His name was Reb Aaron from the city of Biyashkinovitz. And he says, he would say, Master of the universe, Rebbeinu Shaloylam, 90 years I've been lying. Please give me one day without a lie. Give me one day of truth. One day without deception. The verse says, doesn't mean I am praying. It means that I have become a prayer. My identity has been transformed into a prayer. To one of his great Hasidim and personal secretary, Rabchacha Fagin. Herst Chacha? 
Oiren Sof is nit kein metzies amiti. Giluya etzem is nit kein metzies amiti. Amincha, das is a metzies amiti. You hear Chacha? The infinite light of the infinite one is not ultimate true reality. The revelation of the essence is not ultimate true reality. Mincha, davening mincha, that's true reality. Hashemesh yotzo ala oretz. When the sun fängt an shining, wird sie rot verbuschen, verwemmen shining. The verse says in Genesis, the sun came out on the earth. When the sun emerges, the sun comes out as dawn breaks. It's very red. It becomes red from shame. It blushes, asking itself the question, before whom am I shining? In the name of his father. Die zet, der Seichel versteht, und die Herz lebt über. The soul sees, the mind comprehends, the heart experiences. Es wird kommen eine Zeit, wenn die Busche, wenn was man hat, nicht getan wird, sein sehr groß. There's going to come a time when the shame for what we did not do today is going to run very deep. Quoting an episode that occurs by the Seder of Pesach by his great-grandfather, the Tzemach Tzedek, in the year 1865, Tofresh they come to the section of Yachatz where you break the middle matzah into two. The larger part of the matzah you put away for the afikom and the smaller part of the matzah stays on the table. And one of the guests at the table of the Tzemach Tzedek breaks his matzah in two. And he's not sure which one is the gadol and which one is the cotton, which one is large, which one is small. And he's measuring them and comparing them to each other. And the Tzemach Tzedek says, A gadol vas medafe mestin is the cotton gresa for them. A gadol, which you have to measure, the cotton is greater than him. A great one which has to be measured, the smaller one is greater than him. In the itzdiker zeit, when the hoive is a bitterer, darf man leben mit dem avar. In the present time, when the present is bitter, one must live with the past. In ruchnius is nitokin avar. In true spirituality, there's no such a thing as past. It was. If it's genuine spirituality, if it touched the core of spirituality of divinity, there's no such a thing as it was. It is. It's always. Was is his beinenus ba'ariches? As men betracht sich, was men ken sein, was men muss sein, und was men is, or das is his beinenus. The name of his father, he defined, what is meditation, what is contemplation? When you perceive and you think about what you could be, what you should be, and what you are, that is introspective meditation. The prophet says, Elio, Anavi, Elijah hears the voice, It's a silent, still voice. And that was the presence of God. So he says, It's Dmomadik, it's silent, so it's already fine. If it's silent, it's fine. A maskil gate of an cup and an oivid gate of the fist. In the Chabad lexicon, a maskil is somebody who's submerged in the intellectual pursuit of godliness. An oivid 
is somebody who internalizes the ideas to refine his character. A maskil walks on his head, an oivid walks on his feet. A maskil bizvanen is alani ben veinen ken zich de himmel spalten, aber as er veinchen, yeah, ken ashtein zagein. A maskil, the great intellectual minded human being, for him to start crying. The heavens can split and he won't cry. But when he does begin weeping, even a melt, even a stone can melt. Getlichkeit is emes. Un emes is was das is nitis pastus. Not as lichte van art in a winkel, un es geitois. Godliness is truth. And what does it mean that it's true? It doesn't have to express itself. It stays in one place in a corner and it melts away. In Jewish law, we have a concept of Jews. He reads the Torah, he doesn't know what he's saying. He's saying, These Jews who don't know what they're saying are vessels for the most essential, truest light. What Hasidus demands is bring your whole heart into it. In ignorance, we are all wealthy. There's something we are all very rich in. We have a lot of it. Not understanding. David HaMelech is given a great salamden. You can't good learn. And from this way, not a gemach, not a lamdishen sefer. Afkenen zich patchen in the Bible. Zagen, da hast du Baba Kame, da hast du Baba Metzia, da hast du Baba Basra. Nar was it a gemach? Atilamol. Af dem nemen de Herzen. David, King David, was a great scholar, great lamdan, a great Talmud Chachem. He really knew how to learn. But he didn't author a book on deep intellectual concepts of lambdas so that he could bang himself on his stomach and say, ah, here you have Baba Kama, Baba Metziah, Baba Basra, the great complicated Talmudic tractates. What did he author? The book of Tehillim to capture the heart. So once the Rebbe is sitting at the meal and they serve fish in a plate and the plate is in another plate. It's a double plate and the fish is in the top plate. And the waiter gives it to the Rebbe Rayatz and the Rebbe takes a look at it. A little bit of a strange look. So the waiter, in his perception, turns to the Rebbe and he says, Efshevil the Rebbe blows ain't teller. Maybe the Rebbe only wants one plate. The Rebbe looks at him and he says, Vos is shayich avel in an Indian for chitzanias. What's the connection between desire and something so external? You're asking if the Rebbe wants, if he desires only one plate. How do you juxtapose the two terms? How do you connect the concept of desire to something so external? That ikid is nit hedin nor dead hedin. The primary thing in life is not to listen, but it's to internalize. I'll conclude with one last line of the Rebbe, Rayatz. Apach fargate, abravort bashtate. A smack passes, a word endures. L'chaim, l'chaim, l'vracha, l'chaim, l'chaim.
There is, my dear friends, a very strange medrash in this week's Torah portion, Beshalach. In this week's portion, the Jews cross the Red Sea, and when they come to the other side, the Torah says, Oz Yashir Moshe Bnei Yisrael Sashira Azoyis Lashem Vayemur At that time, Oz, Moses will sing together with the children of Israel the great song to God. And the Torah continues to quote this song, the beautiful poem and song that the Jewish people sang at that great exalted moment after observing the grand miracle of the splitting of the sea. A song that we recite every day in our morning services in Shachras. The Medrash emphasizes the words, Oz Yashir Moshe. At that time Moses sings, Moses will sing, Oz. And the Medrash says, Something very enigmatic. Moshe chata ba'oz. Tikein bi'oz. Moshe sinned with the word oz. And now he cleansed the sin with the word oz. Just a few weeks ago in Parsha Shmois, at the end of the portion, Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Moshe goes to Pharaoh demanding from him to let the people go. And what does Pharaoh do? He increases the burden. 
He increases the slave labor. He makes their life more miserable. And the Jews come screaming to Moshe saying, Why did you do this to us? You made the situation worse. And who does Moshe go to? He goes to Hashem. He goes to God. And what does he tell him? He says, Why are you causing so much harm to this nation? From that time that I came to speak to Parai, he increased the torture of this people. You did not rescue this nation as you promised. The word Moshe used was us. May us bosiel pare. From that time when I came to Pharaoh, things became worse. Now he uses the same word. Us Yashir Moshe. At that time Moshe will sing. So the Medrash says he sinned with the word us. Telling God that he made it worse and not better. And now he fixed it through the word us. And I want to ask you a question. What's the meaning of this? Was the issue really the word us? If Moshe would have not used the word us, if Moshe would have just come to God and said, I came to Parai and things became more terrible, why are you behaving in such an unjust fashion? If the Medrash believed that that message is wrong, what's the difference if he used the word us or he didn't use the word us? The word us means then, at that time. And let me ask you again here, when he sings the praise, when he sings the song, if he would have not used the word us, if it would have just said, that by Yoimahu that day Moshe sang the song. Or Moshe sang the song without the word Oz. Would it minimize? Would it diminish? Would it alter the exaltedness of the moment? This sacredness of the moment? Is it really about the word Oz that captures the sin? And the word Oz that captures, captures the transformation? The healing? The repentance? What's the meaning of this? So there's an insight I saw in the work on the Parsha, on the Torah, by the great sage of Jerusalem, Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin of blessed memory, the Torah Lamoyadim. And he gives us an insight, and I want to develop the insight a little bit. It's based on, it's based on the nucleus, of the, it's based on the idea he transcribes there. And the point is, the word Oz means then, Oz represents that which is not present. That which belongs to a different place, to a different time, to a different era, to a different milieu. That's what the word Oz in Hebrew means. So when Moshe says, May Oz basi el pari from that time when I came to Parai to speak in your name, things became worse. Now he says, Oz Yashir Moshe, then at that time, Moshe sings. Oz captures the concept that it's not right now. It belongs to a different different time, a different era. Us, then. As we say in English, then, not now. Yesterday, tomorrow, but not now.
So now let's understand. When Moshe says, May Oz Bossi Ledaber El Paroi, when I came then to speak to Pari, the situation became worse. What is lacking here? What is lacking, the Medrash is telling us, is that Moshe was not appreciating the full picture and the big picture. The Egyptian exile wasn't a purpose in and of itself. The Egyptian exile, as painful, as difficult as it was, was essential to the process of molding the Jewish people into the divine nation that would become a sacred nation and would receive the Torah at Mount Sinai and ultimately transform civilization. Yes, Moshe was right in the sense that he protested the pain. We all protest the pain. And we ask, Why? What's the necessity for it? When the Medrash talks about Moses' sin, it doesn't mean literally a sin. Moshe wasn't a sinner. Moshe was a righteous and holy person. He was a servant of God. What it means is, relative to the level of Moshe, there was something missing. And the word chait, sin, also means missing, last, lacking. There was a void. Moshe was experiencing the void that comes from the fact that we don't see the full picture. We don't see the entire process. We don't see the beginning of the book, the middle of the book, and the end of the book. The entire symphony. And therefore, Hashem said, I'm going to redeem the people. He comes to Pari. Things are getting worse. Why are things getting worse? He says. So that first Oz represented a certain short-sightedness relative to the level of Moshe. And a short-sightedness that is intrinsic to the human condition because we do not see the full picture. We are contemporary creatures in the sense that we live in the present, we feel the present. So that Oz represented the fact that Moshe zoomed in into what he was seeing right now and saying, from the time I came to Parai, I see things only going downhill. Things getting worse and deteriorating. Why are you doing it? In this week's Parsha B'Shalach, Moshe uses the same word, Oz Yashir Moshe. And our sages ask the question and Rashi quotes it. Grammatically it should have said, Oz Shar Moshe. At that time Moshe sung. Yashir Moshe is in the future tense. It means at that time Moshe will sing. Az Yashir Moshe at that time Moses will sing. Here we have the source that Moses didn't only sing in the past, he will sing in the future. He will sing in the future. It's not only a song of the past, it's a song of the future. But what the Medrash is telling us here is something even deeper. Az, when Moshe says this Az, now Yashir Moshe, Moshe will sing at the present moment. He did not only see the past, he did not only see the present, he also saw the entire future and he lived with the future. And at that moment he inculcated in the Jewish people the awareness and the conviction that we are on a journey from Sinai towards redemption, towards Mashiach. And he gave the Jewish people the ability to realize that every moment of the journey is part of a big unfolding journey towards redemption. And every day the march to redemption gets closer. And every mitzvah brings the world closer to Mashiach. And every good deed, and every prayer, and every tear, and every favor, and every good act that a person does in the world 
increases the energy of the redemption and brings the world closer to redemption. So the first Oz represents the fact that we are stuck in a particular moment and we get paralyzed by the moment because we do not see that there is a journey, there's a road, there's a purpose, there's a mission. We get paralyzed, we get demoralized because we get stuck in what we see at this very moment. So Moshe says, May us basiladabe when I came to Paray, things only got worse. That's what that us represented. And the next us, us Yashe, represents the fixing of that. Moshe's ability to see the whole picture. Moshe's ability to see the future as part of the present reality. To appreciate the fact that exile is only a temporary condition. That we are on a journey towards redemption. So I heard from Rabbi Adin, Evan Yisrael, Rabbi Adin Steinsatz, who told me the story, he said he heard it from the late president of Israel, Shnei Zalman Shazar, that once he visited the Rebbe, and he was in the Rebbe's room, and he asked the Rebbe when he's going to visit the Holy Land, and the Rebbe told him, I'm going to come there together with Mashiach. So Shazar, you know, gave some type of strange or awkward look, like, Intimating, you know, what type of answer is that? And the Rebbe grabbed him by his hand and pointed to the clock on the table and said, just like when you came into this room, you took a look at the clock to see what time it is. And when you're going to leave this room, you're going to look at the time so you could know how many minutes passed from when you went into this room till you exited this room. I want to tell you, trust me to say Zalman that I look at the clock in the same way and I say an hour passed and Mashiach did not come. Perhaps he'll come the next hour and then another hour passed and Mashiach did not come. Because for the Jew, redemption is not just a distant, remote, possible reality. The Jewish people lived with the consciousness of Animamin b'munashleim abaviyas Mashiach. They lived with the hope and the yearning for redemption. They lived with the awareness that we are on a mission. We are on a journey. The world has a purpose. The world has a destiny. That Mashiach is going to come and our job is to prepare ourselves in the world for Mashiach. Our job is Oz Yashir Moshe. When we sing now, we also sing because we know that there's a future song. And the ability to sing, the ability for the Jewish people to sing throughout all the years of exile and throughout their whole history was because Oz Yashir Moshe Bnei Israel. Because at that moment when Moshe sang, he didn't only sing for that moment. He empowered us to sing the Jewish people could sing because they knew that somehow there was as explicable as it is there is a meaning there is a purpose in all of the circumstances and in all of their experiences and that our job is to spread goodness and kindness and advance the world one step closer to redemption so the Jew can sing throughout the day, throughout, throughout the journey I heard from uh, Rabbi Tendler, Rabbi Moshe, Rabbi Moshe Tendler, that uh, his father-in-law, the great sage, the great halachic authority, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, 
once had to go through a surgery. And he asked his son-in-law lots of details about the son-in-law as a doctor, a physician, lots of details about the mechanism of the surgery. And when he wondered why he wanted to know all of this, Reb Moshe said that he hopes and believes and prays that Mashiach is going to come very soon. And he really hopes and believes that he will be a member of the Sanhedrin, of the Supreme Court. And therefore he wants to make sure that this procedure will not turn him into a Balmum, will not turn him into a blemished person, which will affect his ability to be in the Sanhedrin Mashiach comes. So it was a reality by the Jewish people. It was part of their reality, not because they didn't live in this world, they lived in, in heaven, but because they understood the truth of the world and the truth of history and the truth of existence. History is divine and the world is God's world. And every moment we bring the world a step closer to redemption. May we experience it speedily in our days. Very speedily in our days. Amen. Kain Yehi Ratzon. L'chaim, l'chaim, This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.